All right. Hello. We're here today with Cortland Allen, who's running Indie Hackers, which is a site where he's been interviewing smaller entrepreneurs who are independent and running software businesses and building up some just really interesting, sustainable businesses bit by bit. And uh, so he's doing his own thing with Indie Hackers. He's making some money on that on the side with some bigger plans. And he's also obviously talked to a ton of really interesting people with really interesting stories. So I wanted to talk to him about what he's learned, kind of what he's doing and all of that. So welcome. Hi, Garrett. Glad to be Uh, here. I guess go ahead and give me a quick rundown of your history, your kind of backstory, how you got to where you are today, what has inspired you to get here and kind of where you're hoping to uh, take Indie Hackers. Yeah, so I'm a, my backstory is that I've been a computer programming nerd since I was like eight years old. Uh, We first got got the web house. I ended up going to MIT, getting a degree in computer science, and I graduated and immediately started doing a startup called Cipher um, that ran out of money and didn't do very well. But about a year later, I got into Y Combinator. I did Y Combinator in winter 2011, six years ago now, um, with a startup called Task Force, which the app still exists, but we kind of shut it down as a, as a company that was had all these big aspirations. And three, four months ago now, I started working on ND Hackers, which is what we're doing the interview for, where I basically find the founders of profitable side projects or online businesses or tech companies, and I ask them all sorts of questions, including how much money they're making, um, how they got the idea, alternative ideas they considered, how they're doing growth and marketing, et cetera. So I think the story of my life has basically always been focused on entrepreneurship, especially tech startups and, and making money online. Right on. Okay. So you've got... You are interestingly focused on the transparency. One of the things that I think mm-hmm. draws a lot of people to indie hackers is the transparency. And there's real numbers there. And all of a sudden, something that is imaginary is tangible. Um, what kind of drew you to transparency? And what's, how does that fit together with the motivation between the fact that all the other stories you hear online are, you know, so-and-so raised millions of dollars or is worth millions of dollars, is making millions of dollars, is worth billions of dollars. How does that all kind of tie together for you? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's intimately related. I think uh, everybody's seen those stories on TechCrunch, and it, it's what, if you live in Silicon Valley or you follow tech news, it's what dominates the airwaves, right? How much money this company raised, how much money this company is worth on paper, based on how much they've raised, et cetera. And they're almost always, like, there's this obsessive focus with these unicorn companies that are going for a billion dollars, right? And that makes sense to me. It's really inspiring to see those big stories. But there's also a lot of people like me and like you and other people who want to be successful and they want to start a successful company but don't necessarily care for going for the entire like I'm going to raise as much money as possible thing and like it's all or nothing you know and I've seen a lot of stories like that shared online with people demonstrating like pretty f- and hearing these stories and I think by reading these stories I came to the conclusion that like hey they're a lot more, more compelling when you share how much money they're making right like having some sort of number is really interesting and it, it helps you I think put stories in context like if you hear about a guy who's or a girl who's like raised or who's, uh, you know, achieved a certain level of success and has an email newsletter that's this big and that has a website traffic. It's kind of hard for you to say, well, I want to do this too, unless they say, okay, I'm making a thousand dollars a month or $15,000 a month, et cetera, because people are trying something like this could actually be sustainable for them, right? If they could, if they could live their lifestyle off of a particular business. So I think including the numbers makes all the interviews a lot more compelling. It's easier to put them in context and to decide, like, okay, how does this 
fit into your life if you wanted to do something like this. Yeah, it makes it realistic when there's an absolute number on it rather than just totally talking about it. Yeah. So totally. what about I think one of and with Sifter, I never shared the numbers more for fear of it being a distraction than any concern about uh, mm. opinions. What have you encountered so far in terms of transparency and whether that's hurt or helped businesses uh, that you've talked to and interviewed? I'm sure some of them probably talking to you was probably when they were shared those numbers for the first time, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, most how, of them, how have you seen that play out? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like the, the vast majority of companies that I've interviewed are like, no, I don't want to share my revenue numbers. You're crazy. Before the hackers existed, like I had this giant list of like 140 companies that it took me days to go through and try to e find email addresses and email everybody. And like the vast majority of people were just like, fuck off. <laughs> but the people who have shared their, their, their you know revenue numbers and all their secret sauce details i think have benefited a lot because people really resonate with transparency they really like to read about what's going on behind the scenes and i think it builds a sense of trust among your customers and potential audience when they know that you're sharing all this stuff because it makes your business a lot more personal you know it's like you're an actual person making actual money and you have things that you worry about things that go well things that don't go well uh there are downsides specifically depending on like what kind of business you're running like if you have some sort of business that depends on like a top secret algorithm, you probably don't want to publish the code to that top secret okay. algorithm, right? And there are some businesses and some founders who've said like, hey, I really want to share on indie hackers and I think what you guys are doing is awesome. But like I'm operating in this segment where it's like kind of secret right now and I don't want to draw too much attention to myself until I hit some level of success where I think I've built like, you know, the moats that I need to defend my business, which I think is important in a lot of cases. So in that situation, I think, you know, you have more of a reason not to necessarily share your revenue and i think i've had a lot of companies on the site who've also told me like yeah there's lots of like tons of people who've like released clones not necessarily right after they had their indie actors interviews but even beforehand yeah. so, so i think there's, there's that kind of mindset but overall like transparency is huge and there's so many businesses that have embraced transparency like buffer like convert kit that are just growing rapidly and successfully despite how open they are because at the end of the day like no one's going to clone exactly what you're doing you know, two years after you start and then catch up to you and pass you unless you're just doing a terrible job anyway. So uh, it's usually not the make or break factor. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. I don't think it's ever the truly deciding factor. And being somebody who has just never wanted to mess with that and go down that road and looking back, it's like, eh, it probably really didn't matter. For me, I was just really afraid of it being a distraction more than anything. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, on that note, I've been pretty transparent about indie hackers. I think it would just be hypocritical for me to have a site that requires everybody <laughs> to be transparent and me not to share my own revenue. And, and there are parts of it that are definitely distracting. Like, I write these month and review blog posts, and I, I need to write one tomorrow, actually, because it's the end of November, where I share, okay, here's how much money I made, here's how many you know, visitors I got. And in a way, it's distracting because I feel like I'm making these promises and these goals in public that makes me like way more committed to trying to follow through. So like at the end of October, I was like, I want to have 2,000, 200,000 member. And I like stressed myself out over trying to hit this arbitrary goal that I just like on a whim wrote in a public blog post, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it's definitely a distraction to, to, to have people know what your goals are and, and what you're doing and to feel beholden to them and not trying to let them down. So I think it takes some alignment, you know, well, you, you can, need to align there. You can do transparency to yourself yeah. almost too much too. I know with Sifter, yeah. my expectations were unrealistic going into it. Everything was going fine, but my expectations were just 
not fair. And so then I ended up <laughs> disappointed, even though it was doing well. And Very it's tough to get that right going into it, right? Because everybody has these big hopes and dreams. And, you know, it's very rare that you nail those hopes and dreams. Uh, so it's easy to fall short and then think you failed when really you're doing just fine. Uh, so one of, that's a great lead into one of the things I want to talk to you about. So you're doing Indie Hackers. It's not a software business in and of itself, uh, but you have aspirations of maybe going there someday. So how talk a little bit, I guess, about your master plan there for setting up some kind of revenue and income and then parlaying that into something bigger. Yeah, I wish I wish I had a master a master plan. I'm kind of winging it, but I, I do have. I'm I'm a big fan of planning. And a I think, big picture, you know, at least, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of think of Indie Hackers right now. It's a content business, but it's got like I think of it like is like a Hydra, right? Like this monster that's got all sorts of heads, and each one does a different thing. And like one of them is the interviews, which are the bread and butter of the website. The revenue that they generate comes entirely from sponsorships and advertising, and they also generate like the vast, like 90% of the traffic that comes to any hackers comes to see the interviews. Mm -hmm. Right now I have an interview at the top of Hacker News that's bringing in like, I think I have a thousand people on my site right now just because of that interview. So that's like the number one thing that I'm focused on right now, but I'm also focused on a podcast. Like I really want to release a podcast. A lot of people have asked me to release a podcast and that's an entirely new way to bring in listeners and readers who haven't heard about any hackers before and also for revenue because that's extra real estate that I could charge for advertising and sponsoring sponsorships etc in terms of like the software side of things because a podcast is also content I have a few ideas in the pipeline for ways that I could actually make more scalable income using like a SaaS application or something and I think that indie hackers more than anything has given me like an audience that if I were to go that route I would be able to launch to you know captive readers who are interested already in what I have to work on. And that's such a huge advantage that I think a lot of people miss out on or don't take advantage of when they have it. Like it's really difficult to launch a new product into a vacuum and hope that it picks up steam. Like you need some sort of strategy to get it out there. And I think the cool thing about indie hackers is that there's just so many hundreds of thousands of visitors every month that no matter what I do, if I can make it something that they like or they, you know, appeals to them or solves a problem of theirs, then it'll be, you know, it'll get off to a good start. Yeah, so many founders that I've talked to you know, one of the most common questions people ask is, where did you find your first customers? And mm -hmm. the most successful people I talk to are the ones who had built an audience of some sort, not necessarily intentionally or with a plan, but just had an audience because they shared, they gave stuff away. They, you know, put everything they knew out in the open to help other people. And then by the time they thought, oh, hey, I could build something, they already had that platform to kind of, and it's, it's not going to be a saving grace, but it's going to help you get kickstarted, right? It's not going to, mm -hmm. you're not having to desperately swim around looking for customers. Exactly. Already kind of built in. And I mean, that's how it was for, for me with Sifter as well. Um, I keep losing my thoughts. I get all these other good thoughts and then, uh, <laughs> and then I lose it. What were you just talking about before that? Because... I think I was that. talking about uh, about like releasing a SaaS application to to like, kind of uh, a captive audience. So, indie hackers, is this your only thing you're working on right now, or you have full time work and this is your side project? How's that? It's my only thing. So I I've okay. done, I did contract work for the past three years while at the same time working on my other app, Task Force, and I decided at the beginning of this year I was just going to quit contracting. I had a decent amount of money saved up, and I was just going to try to find a SaaS app, you know, so or some sort of project that I could build. A little bit of a yeah. leap of faith then. A leap of faith for sure. Uh, it's been, been interesting.
looking at the money every month you know so but at the same time like i was pretty confident that if i couldn't you know build a SaaS app of some sort that i could always make a content site or something where it's like a little bit easier to get kickstarted maybe or if that failed that i could just go back to contracting so did uh, you give yourself kind of a, a threshold of pain at which point you would go looking for work if uh your if your savings were running down too quick or did you just oh yeah totally like if i got back down if i got down to like you know, a month or two of living expenses, I would certainly immediately contract work. But I think, like, personally, I've never held, like, a full-time job. The only jobs I've ever had are contracting and consulting gigs or startups and, like, businesses that I founded myself. Like, that's just not part of who I am. And so even if I went back to work, I think I would try to find a way to work part-time so I could spend the most, most of my time on my own project and trying to figure out how I can become independent. Yeah, no, and that's... Very similar to what I did, paid off my credit cards, had savings, and then alternated between contracting and working on Sifter yeah. as budgeting required. And yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think I think the, the biggest problem is when people think, I'm just going to quit cold turkey, and then I'm going to build it, and then I'm going to make so much money, I'm never going to look back. But it doesn't, <laughs> the, the income doesn't tend to grow like that, except in uh, rare cases. No, it does. So, um, Definitely does. Don't do what I did. Yeah. <laughs> Diving into your experience, all the interviews, uh, if you had to pick one or two mistakes that you feel like people say, you know, I screwed this up, I did this wrong, I should have done this differently, what would mm-hmm. those be, the recurring themes? Yeah, I try to ask every single founder, uh, if, you, if we sent you back on a time machine, you know, back to the beginning of your business, what would you do differently? And a lot of people like to say, well, I wouldn't change anything, you know, but I think that's that's almost always a disingenuous answer. I think that's- you can look at their stories and you can see common mistakes and things that people did that yeah. they did probably would have grown a lot faster. Uh, the number one thing is, is marketing and distribution of your product. Like getting the word out about what you're building is so important. It's just as important as building the thing. And a lot of people really underestimate it. Like they start building and they don't pay any attention at all to whether or not people are going to like it or more importantly, like how they're going to get the word out about it, right? And so then they end up with this product and they tweet into the abyss and no one reads their tweet. They put it on Hacker News, no one upvotes it, and it just sits there. A lot of people get discouraged. Like, I don't even want to know how many people would love to submit their company to Indie Hackers, but they tweeted about it and posted about it and no one said anything or used it and that was the end of it. They just abandoned it. Yeah. Uh, so I think the biggest mistake that I see is people not thinking about marketing from the get-go. And there's the opposite trend, if you look at the most successful companies, like almost all of them have some sort of like marketing or distribution strategy baked into the product. Like the very core of the product itself makes it easy to market. Yeah. Like these, these businesses that just make a product that's so self-evidently good that it spreads like wildfire, although those are like the stories that people like to read are pretty rare. Most of the time there's some sort of extra thing giving it a, a marketing push to get into users' hands. So I think that's the number one mistake. Yeah, I think as developers and designers – we tend to be the founders tend to come more from product people and mm-hmm. they think I'm going to make a good product that doesn't need marketing. Right. They I don't know if it's Steve jobs who was always saying that marketing is the price you pay for a crappy product or some right. primitive form of that. And so I think we're all a little bit idealistic thinking, Oh, well if I just build a good product, uh, then I don't have to market, but there's two flaws in that. One is when you first build it, it's not good enough. And mm-hmm. uh, two, it needs marketing, period. Even Apple markets, right? Like, right. Um, and I think we all just get a little idealistic and fall into that trap and think we don't have to do that when, in reality, it needs to probably be a quarter, 
arguably maybe 50% of your time, you know, reaching mm-hmm. out and doing the marketing and planning it. Uh, and, but it's a hard pill to swallow when you want to write code. You're like, I don't want to go spend time on marketing stuff, but that's right. Right. I totally, I mean, I think that the, the best trick is if you can find out, cause I personally hate marketing stuff. Like the last thing I worked on task force, I was so discouraged whenever I needed to do marketing stuff, but I had yep. to spend tons of time coding when I wanted to do marketing stuff. Well, the ND hackers, it's been really, really different. It's been surprising how much I've been able to focus on marketing stuff. And I've realized it's because like the day-to-day tasks that I have for like making the product and running the business are marketing in and of themselves. They're like things that where it doesn't even feel like marketing, but it's like getting the word out there. And it's really, really easy to do much more so than it was with other products. So I think like some of the best stories on the site are, are companies that have figured out like a way to make marketing like intimately tied with developing their product or tied with thinking about their product or tied with just like using itself in some way. And I think for developers who aren't necessarily enthused about you know spreading the word and really just want to code, like thinking about that from the get-go and baking it into your product is... Is, there's just no substitute for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> I think I have a really good question I kind of want to say for the end. Um, mm-hmm. So, based on your learnings, what kind of what's your favorite part of talking to them? What are you learning, and that's kind of opened your eyes to hearing over and over again mm-hmm. that you didn't expect or that kind of caught you off guard, even with your own experience. Yeah, I think. I've got a lot of favorite parts of doing the interviews. Like part of it is, is like the personally selfish part that I'm like making all these cool connections with like these really successful and inspirational people. And like they all feel connected to me and I feel connected to them and we collaborate on stuff. And it's like, I think that's, I'm at a phase of my life now where I really appreciate networking and I think that like I'm going to take full advantage of it. Uh, but in terms of the interview content themselves, like I'm constantly shocked at like the amazing ideas that people are coming up with that like seems so obvious once you hear them, but you just don't it's like why did I ever think of that you know it took me like coming up with the idea for indie hackers like I was spent like weeks just thinking about different ideas and most of them were crap and I hear these people's ideas and it's just, like day after day great idea after great idea I think that's a phase a lot of people get stuck on uh how do people come up with their idea pretty consistently people are just solving their own problems and it sounds kind of crappy to a lot of entrepreneurs who are like struggling to come up with an idea because like I don't have any problems or they look at the problems they do have and they're like there's no there's no business there, but I think it often comes down to having like a variety of experiences. And this is like a kind of a thing I've been obsessed with in recent weeks that like an idea is really just a combination of like two other ideas. And so people who have like a wide variety of experiences, like maybe they play video games and they travel and then they figure out some way to combine the two things, come up with the most creative ideas. And it's like, you can take almost any two random topics and combine it and come up with something that's interesting. It might not be a good business idea, but if you stick to that formula and if you, you know, increase the breadth of your experience to the point where you just have a huge repertoire of things that you can work on, then I think you're more likely to run into an idea and kind of have that flash of insight that gets you started at least. Yeah. So on that note, I feel like a lot of people are stuck on, I need to create SaaS. That uh-huh. needs to be the way to make money. But now just looking over the interviews, there's plenty of people you've talked to that aren't doing SaaS. They've got some other form of either recurring revenue or some other product or approach to what they're doing to make money. Um, mm-hmm. What, what would you say to kind of help people realize there's more to it than just creating the software? Like what if, you know, start with this as your core and then build on that and then maybe create a, a product that's SaaS or, you know, kind of all the different channels and paths that you've seen 
Yeah, there's so many of them. And I think like SAS has this particular allure, especially if you're a programmer, just because it's 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 code. You don't really want to hire people. You have this like mindset that I just make a SaaS app and it'll live on its own and make a ton of money by itself. But like, I don't want to say that market is like saturated. There's still great SaaS apps coming out and there still will be for indefinitely going into the future. But there's so many other ways to make money that might be an easier way to at least get started. Um, it's hard to make that case to a lot of people, to be honest. Like it's, I think you should start off by trying to identify a problem that people have. That's the number one place to start and see if you can come up with a compelling solution to that problem that's significantly better than what the competition is delivering or that targets a niche, you know, an underserved niche that doesn't actually have a solution to their problem, so they're doing it in some crazy way. And you don't have to necessarily solve that with SaaS. In fact, oftentimes building a SaaS app takes months or weeks and you could solve it by hand just to try to validate your idea and see if it's any good before you write a single line of code. Um, there's this girl on the forum who started this business. Her name is Tosh. And she's basically making like a better Google alert system. So I told her like, hey, I want to get all the news about indie hackers. And every day she sends me like all this information about, okay, here, indie hackers is mentioned on Hacker News and this comment. It's mentioned on Quora here, et cetera, et cetera. And she started off just doing this by hand just yeah. to see if it was a viable idea and if, if it was something that made sense. And from there she could go anywhere. She could write you know, she could turn into like a content business where she talks about the best way to do content marketing because she's learning a lot about that in the process. Yeah. Um, so you don't necessarily have to get your start with SaaS. And I think as time goes on, people will find alternative ways to make money, especially through producing content, because there's just so many different holes that have not been filled in terms of the content that people are interested in consuming. Like Indie Hackers is a perfect example. People want to read about these smaller businesses and no big tech publications are writing about them. To this day, not a single tech publication that's written about indie hackers, not TechCrunch, not anything. No matter how much traffic I get, no matter how many times it's at the top of Hacker News. So uh, content is a good one, and there's a lot of others too. Absolutely. So, um, <laughs> distracting. <laughs> uh, I think one of the ways, or one of the things I'm trying to help people see too, is just that it doesn't have to start with a home run, right? You can hit single after single, and then let them grow on each other and build on that next idea. And so starting something like that manually going through, and I think Derek service has a great blog post on this where somebody came up to him with an idea and he said, but I'd have to do all this and do this and it'll take me forever to get started. He's like, no, you don't. You could start tomorrow. Just use a spreadsheet and do it by hand and then yeah. talk to people. And then those people will give you ideas and then you can build on that. And then you could start writing software and then slowly increase it. But that way, you know, a lot of people too are so worried about validation when it's like, right. if you're not sure, just find a way to do it manually and then slowly mm -hmm. automate away as much as you can. Use, a, you know, Google Sheets and Zapier or, uh, you know, any of these, you know, Airtable or any of these tools out there to build something simple and start there. And then if there's something there, people are going to let you know it's going to catch fire and you're going to realize, okay, I need to take the next step on this. Yeah, I think that kind of stuff happens all the time. Like a ton of companies are getting started using like these like hacky methods that people are just using spreadsheets and stuff temporarily, and people don't realize it because they don't have this magical window into what happens in companies in the early days. They just see the finished product and they're just like, "I've got to go start there." You know, look at all these guys. But well, and as developers I think too, I think a lot of people's first inclination is, "Oh, I know how to write code. I'm going to go write code." But there's even yeah. lower friction ways to get started that don't require writing code. And the less code you write to get started, the quicker you can test out that idea, see if it works, see if it, you know, people enjoy it, appreciate it, find value in it. And the yeah, less totally. friction, the less time you invest up front to check and make sure that that there is going to be an interest in that idea, 
the quicker you can focus in on the right thing and really double down on it and put your time, apply it wisely. Yeah, and I think that programmer thing is like the, the comment that she made about like programmers having this inherent bias to write code is so true. Like, there's just saying that to the man with the hammer, everything looks like a nail. Like to a programmer, like everything looks like you need to write a SaaS app, right? Yeah. And it's funny because a lot of programmers will undervalue. Like the flip side of it is a lot of programmers will undervalue the value of like an idea because they think, oh, it would be so easy for me to just write this. Like I've, there's been yeah. so many companies on Indie Hackers or they've been on like Hacker News or some other place on Twitter. And a lot of developers pile on and they're just like, oh my God, this is a dumb idea. Why does anybody pay for this? I could just code this for myself in 10 minutes. And it's like yeah. most people aren't programmers. You know, They're not going to learn to code just so they can make their own SaaS apps. So I think sometimes it, it helps to take a step back from your own profession or way of viewing the world and, and think about like – I think there's an echo chamber factor there too, right? Like there's so many tools being built for developers right now and those tools get spread. They're the ones that get featured on Product Hunt, on Hacker News and, you know, it all kind of piles on and Lord knows how many, you know, well, take me for instance, bug tracking apps there are in the world, right? Yeah. Or uh, um, continuous integration and all, you know, all these things and a lot of them, you know, it's not to say they're not the right products, but there's so much opportunity out there in products that, are for people who aren't developers, right? Where you can take this knowledge and leverage it in a way to help people. Um, like Derek Sivers, obviously he didn't know how to develop, but he just started out helping musicians and kind of learned to figure it all out on the fly and help fill gaps whenever he came across them. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to really get outside of the software echo chamber and, and build tools that you know are helpful to people outside of our niche. Totally agreed. Okay, so kind of back to all of these uh, interviews and your experience, if you could sum all of these up and give people one lesson from those interviews, uh -huh. that, and you have to distill it to one, can't be five times. <laughs> somebody wants to start some kind of business online, software, content, whatever, what would that advice be? Uh, one piece of advice. It's so hard because so we were talking about earlier. Like it just depends on where you are. You know, if you're at one phase, you want totally different advice than someone else, and it's so hard to give one piece of advice. Think about the people Let's who are starting it, and, and have have nothing yet. They've got a day job and they want uh -huh. to make this transition. All right, well, this is, might be an odd piece of advice, but I think the thing that I think would get most people maybe off their butt, so to speak, is is put up a landing page and try charging money for the a product that doesn't even exist yet. Just try it. The reason I give this advice is because in that situation, which I think is the most, most people have not started on anything yet, are a lot of times paralyzed because there's so much work to do. Putting up a landing page and trying to charge money for it is like the simplest possible thing you could do and if you start getting orders and you start making sales, then like I don't know of anything else that will spur you into action faster than like five or ten people telling you they want to pay for this thing that you haven't even built yet. Yeah. A really good again interview I did on that front is Insta Painting, which to date is the most popular interview on Indie Hackers. And it was started by Chris Chen, who did Y Combinator with me six years ago, but it was started like two or three years ago. And he was literally like in debt and the red, had no money left. And he started Insta Painting to get himself out of debt. He was like, oh my God, I'm screwed. My company's not working. I better start another company to make money. And the first thing that he did was say, hey, like, 
if you send me your photos, I'll send you back a painting. It's only, you know, a hundred bucks. And he got like 20 orders or something and made $2,000 instantly. And then he had to like build out this whole product that didn't exist yet. If he didn't have the time pressure of like today, I need to make money to get out of debt. He never would have considered that. He would have kept making MVP after MVP of these products that took too long to build and, and that no one really wanted to pay for and that he would get to surge from. And so I think it's a little quirky, but try charging for something that doesn't even exist yet. Yeah, so I think there's two points I would add on to that. Would be one, make sure if you're charging for it, you can deliver it fairly quickly because no one's going to be more upset than giving you their credit card and then finding yeah. out they've got to wait three months to get the instant right. software they just signed up for. Don't don't take their money. Just get them um, get them to yeah. Pay for so, it. and and the second is the credit card as validation is, to me, that's always the way to decide whether somebody's serious or not. Right, like talking to people and people are gonna be like, Oh yeah, I would use it whether right. they think they would, or they're just being nice or whatever. It's so trivial for somebody to say, yes, you're an idea, but it's a mm-hmm. whole other story to just simply say, great. Can you give me a credit card and I'll sign you up right now? It's mm-hmm. going to change the answer nine times out of 10. And Completely. so you don't necessarily have to, uh, to charge the card then, but take pre-orders so that you can charge when you launch and give people a discount for pre-ordering or something like that. And then when you see all that potential just sitting there where you've got you know $2,000 of pre-orders built up and you're like, if I just ship this, I can make $2,000 like that. I think that would really help and it kind of solves both sides of it where you, you're getting that pressure building up so that you have that extra motivation and you're getting the validation that, wow, people really are willing to pay for this. There's something here. Uh, I think it can really kind of work together to like you said, just kind of get you off your ass and get you going and give you that boost that I think a lot of people have a hard time getting past. Yeah, totally. People really underestimate like the, the degree to which people will be nice when you tell them your idea and they're under no obligation to pay. <laughs> yeah. So no, that, definitely, definitely there's no validation, like actually getting a credit card number. I've heard too many stories where people are said, okay, so I've, I've talked to my friends and family and they all said they would use this. It's like, all right, mm-hmm. <laughs> ignore all of that. <laughs> Unless they're yeah. already paying for it, ignore it and start over. Um, yeah, it's it's a story I hate to hear because so many people, you know, I asked them and then I built it and now nobody's buying it. So yeah, and it's funny because like this, all this advice that we're talking about, like it's all it's been discussed before. You know, this is yeah. not, like we didn't just come up with this idea right here. It's been discussed before, and I think you know that's why. One of the things I always tell people is like if they haven't like spend some time reading and I think we all know like the person who's read like a thousand business books and hasn't written a single line of code or released anything and you know that's one extreme you could take it too far but I run who haven't read anything and they don't know like the basic lessons that have been learned by people like you and me and other people who've succeeded or you know have some experience doing things and I think you can go a long way towards like minimizing your own misery and mistakes by learning from the people who came before you, right? So spend some time in like communities or forums or reading books or blog posts written by people who've done it before so you can kind of internalize the lessons that they've learned and not have to repeat all those. And you'll hear things like don't necessarily trust people's word of mouth, you know, trust paying you, et cetera. So yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely the whole point for me to update the book and write this second edition and talk to people and get different perspectives and get all this together so that hopefully some one or two people or more will hear that idea, that one thing. They're like, wow, I never thought about that. And it'll save them a week of effort and kind of get them over the hump to launching or whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. So 
hopefully it, it works. We've just got to reach more people and help them see the, yeah. see the opportunities there. So, well, on that note, I think that's a good kind of note to wrap up on. We're kind of right around 30 minutes anyway. So, uh, any, any right. parting words or wisdom to share? Great. Uh, get out there. Don't let anything hold you back. Uh, I think we're moving toward a world where we're going to have a lot more independent founders or indie hackers, as they call them, yeah. making their own money and figuring out their own path towards you know financial independence. So uh, good luck. Right on. All right. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks, Garrett.